This week on Earth Ancients, we look at ancient documents from the Middle East, documents that are so old they're considered prehistory. What these cuneiform tablets and other manuscripts reveal to us is that there is a history that is unknown to most of the people on our planet, and they have been repressed by the church and by other bodies of government that just don't want us to know about where we come from, who our ancestors are, and what their influences are on us today. About a year ago, I discovered a a new author. I was, uh, I think, I was looking in Amazon, or I was searching out uh, some new titles, and I ran across a book called *The Stage of Time: Secrets of the Past, the Nature of Reality, and the Ancient Gods of History* by an author named Matthew Lacroix. And uh, subsequently, I reached out to him and uh, got a copy of the book. And not only is the research really compelling, but uh, uh, Matt unveils some new documents, some new uh, information from the ancient past that was kind of eye-opening and refreshing because uh, so much of our past is hidden or kept from us or lost in time. And uh, that's what Earth Ancients is all about, uh, uncovering the past and letting uh, an audience know what is what has happened. So uh, Matt LaCroix is a passionate writer. He's a researcher. He grew up in the outdoors of northern New England. And from a a very early age, he's had a strong connection uh, with nature. And uh, Matt, I want to ask you, uh, by the way, welcome to the program. It's great to hear from you. Thanks, Cliff. Good to be here. I want to ask you in this book uh, about the author, his persistent yearning for adventure led him into profound life-changing experiences. Tell me about that. I'm always curious. Uh, I mean, when I'm in nature and I hike a few times a week just because for me it's a it's a cleanse, it's a it's a, an opening, it's a chance to kind of process the day, the week, the month. What is life-changing for you when you're outside, and what what was the experience that shifted you? Thanks, Cliff. So for me, before I was doing ancient history or writing, um, I was a really, really big hiker. Just someone who just really enjoyed getting out, and I had a lot of different hobbies I did, you know, hiking, snowshoeing, kayaking, um, Mm -hmm. rock hounding, gold gold panning i i have a wide variety of of things that i really enjoy doing but the bottom line is i just really love to be outside um and so in high school up through early college i really got into hiking in an extreme way but not necessarily just the hiking that a lot of people do when they bag peaks and they go on popular trails Mm-hmm. In in many ways, you'll probably understand this, um, and maybe maybe many others will as well. I started to just really get fed up with this society that I was observing all around me that seemed so unbalanced and broken, and so much noise and materialism and things that were continuously bothering me more and more. And so I I tried to seek out these extremely wild places, <laughs> and that was what led me into a lot of these um, events that you that you mentioned. I would go up into um, mountain peaks in the middle of winter, sometimes during a, a snowstorm or, or um, climb some ravine with an ice axe. And, um, and during those types of events, um, multiple times, I, I definitely got to the edge of my life where I was wondering if I was going to make it out alive. 
Mm. Uh, and, and the one in particular that I just want to mention is um, what led me to write in the first place was that I went out to a very, very remote location um, and got into an incident with a rutting bull moose who oh. almost who almost killed me. I was alone six miles from the <laughs> nearest road and I was almost killed by this bull moose and I had to run for my life. And when I got back to um, to my dorm room because I was in college at the time, I realized that no one was going to believe me. And so I, I wrote down the entire event because it was such an incredible experience. When I think of a bull moose, I'm thinking of this big animal with his massive horns. Is that what you encountered? Yeah, actually, the bull moose is one of the most dangerous animals in um, places like Alaska and Canada. Huh. Because unlike um, bears and other things that, you know, you can get into incidents if you get in the wrong place at the wrong time – Bull moose have um, can become extremely aggressive in fall when they're huh. doing their their rutting and their mating, and oh. so if you're in their territory, they actually can seek you out and <laughs> basically force you to leave or get into a fight with you if they think you're some kind of a rival. Yeah, and those horns probably can do some serious damage, right? Yeah, they they trample people. They you look up some statistics from Alaska; it's actually quite shocking. Uh, I think more people are killed from from bull moose than any other any other animal. Um, they're they're enormous. They're um, they're a little bit under underappreciated in terms of their significance and um, was something that people want to look out for. I mean, you really wouldn't want to go into certain areas that have them during during fall if if you know without a a gun or with someone. And of course, for me, um, back then I was silly enough and naive enough to just go out alone and be as far away as I possibly could from the nearest person. And of course, that's where that incident occurred. Yeah, you can get in trouble. So uh, where where do you live? You're in uh, what part of the country? I live in Maine right now, but I'm originally okay. from New Hampshire. Okay, cool, cool. Well, let's talk about this book. I thought it was a, a real nice uh, introduction to a lot of the ancient cultures that we don't know about. You are and I'll just say this, the book covers the pre-Diluvian people for the most part 12,000 years ago, which would be the younger Dryas period. Yep. yep. Let's talk about this uh, Sumerian uh, tablet known as the King's List. This is something that I've I've studied a little bit and there's been some writing about it. What did you discover about the King's List that was so uh, interesting? Well, um, the Sumerian king list is probably the most one of the most well known of what we know as these Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets, which are these um, these pieces of clay long ago that they etched in writing so that people they could they essentially could bake these clay and turn them into tablets and they would survive for thousands of years. It was a brilliant, brilliant way to preserve a message into the future. And there are thousands and thousands of cuneiform tablets that have been recovered in the last couple hundred years. And the Sumerian king list is one of the most famous because it lists out these, what's known as pre-Diluvian, like you mentioned, I mean, before the flood, mm -hmm. this time period of the younger Dryas when these disastrous events occurred. And we can, we can see that plain as day in things like ice core samples from Greenland and, and within ancient records themselves. And it, the Sumerian king list just presents these the list of the first cities it claims that were ever built here, that were ever created, and it lists these long reigns of the kings that ruled there. And a lot of people have speculated that 
It's been mistranslated because it'd be possible. How could someone live for rule or live for hundreds of years, if not if not thousands? Yeah, this is the Pleistocene area or era, excuse me, which is it's the it's the end of the ice age, you know, and it's really strange that the Sumerian would would list this uh, these group of kings in these cities. Uh, I'm curious, is is it's a prehistoric kind of a list? Do they give us a sense of about how far back they go? I mean, there's there's a there's an Egyptian list of pharaohs that goes way back into prehistory. But I'm just curious, do the Sumerians actually list and date these early kings? Yeah, they they list out the specific cities um, such as Eridu or Bad Tabira, and they list the the kings that ruled there, and they give these reigns of of how long they're there for. And I just want to bring up Cliff is that people have speculated when they're questioning that that it was mistranslated and that the the years that are the dates and the years that are used are actually supposed to be um you know days or whatever so it's not really represented like that but one of the things that I've really focused on doing is to go into other ancient tablets and verify that same information to understand that well look this isn't a mistranslation. This is actually this information in these specific cities that are mentioned are are talked about in other tablets as well. Hmm. Now, the opening statement on the king's list uh, says this. When kingship was lowered from heaven, kingship was Eridu. What does that mean? So what it means is it's talking about when the first city essentially was created, but not just an urban area that was lawless, you know, mm-hmm. chaos. It was a place where these these very specific rules and, and moral codes were lowered from what they call the gods to create a certain society, a, a society that followed certain rules and had certain um, moral obligations towards um, following in a in – a, in a, they call it a, a certain um, path of society basically where mm-hmm. – you would have a system in place, this hierarchy system in place that would basically basically uh, define the society. So kingship was this idea where you have these specific royal bloodline um, ancestry individuals who have a long reigning um, history of in being within certain families, and they were designated to specifically rule. And then Generation after generation, they would continuously rule within this bloodline family, and then it would, that kingship structure basically has carried over all the way until today. And you could still see that with places like the royal family and the queen. Okay, when we start talking about ancient Sumerians, we we have to bump into uh, Zechariah Sitchin and his uh, Earth Chronicles. I mean, he gets into the Anunnaki which is hundreds of thousands of years ago uh, in Earth's past, would you suggest or are you suggesting that this king's list and the information being lowered from heaven, it was uh, transferred to the Sumerians from the Anunnaki? Yeah, that's, and that's, so that's a bit of a controversial subject that I want to um, provide a little bit of information on. Mm-hmm. When I first started doing this a number of years ago, Zechariah Sitchin was probably the one of the only known or or, or the only known translator of um, ancient Sumerian language and mentioning the Anunnaki. And so one of the big things that was coming up was that, you know, he translated all of it wrong and that the Anunnaki aren't real and all this stuff. So I went in to essentially 
find other serologist experts who have translated the same tablets to find out for myself what the truth was because I really wanted to understand who these Anunnaki gods that the Sumerians say handed down and basically gave them everything. I mean, we know the Sumerians are the ones who were the first to come up with, you know, understanding mathematics and astronomy and agriculture and laws and, and this multitude of things that make up our society today. And so I wanted to go in and under, truly understand that. So I went in and studied serologist experts such as George Smith who is in my in my mind probably in my opinion one of the the greatest translators in history from the 1800s and then later Stephanie Daly from Oxford University went and took George Smith's translations and either confirmed them or slightly updated them and so that's that became my focus was to use the the best um serologist translators we have to take these tablets and say wow look they absolutely mentioned the Anunnaki they absolutely mentioned all these cities and all these different um ancient terms that were used and this is you know this is the evidence behind what this this story that we've it's been turned into a myth what what it really states yeah i want you to talk a little bit about george smith because i've never heard about him uh, or his book the book he wrote is the chaldea account of genesis which is a fascinating title what did that cover what is that book uh, all about just a translation or is it more detail it's a little more detailed. So the Chaldeans were an, an ancient people that lived in the Mesopotamian area. They were something that was a, a culture that was nearby to places that we know of, like the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And the Chaldeans were just another group. And George Smith, um, he he was he came along in the 1800s, and he was the first Assyriologist in history to ever translate. These cuneiform tablets. And so the way the story goes, so people can wrap their heads around understanding this, long before Zechariah Sitchin was ever around, um, these tablets, enormous amounts of these tablets were discovered in um, in the 1800s in what's called the Ashurbanipal Library. And that is um, the famous library. Well, it's not really famous because most people have never heard of it. It's, it's in my mind, it's a lot more famous. It's a lot more important than even libraries like the Library of Alexandria, because what it contained was a massive amount of these cuneiform tablets that had been recovered from all over Mesopotamia. And Ashurbanipal was a great king in Assyria at the time. And what I try to wrap people's heads around is that, well, we're told that those were written during his time period. But when when you actually dig into the evidence and you, you look at the story of Ashurbanipal, you find out that when he was reigning in Babylon – uh, I mean, he was reigning in Assyria up in, in the city of um, Nineveh. Essentially, these tablets were already ancient. And so what he did, and it's it's kind of an amazing story. I'll just summarize it. But he was a um, one of these deep thinkers, um, really, uh, he was considered an ancient priest. And he found incredible value in these ancient tablets. And so he amassed an army to go out and search everywhere hundreds if not thousands of miles all over Mesopotamia to go to all the ancient sites that he knew about to go recover these tablets because he recognized mm -hmm. the significance of them. So when they discovered the Ashurbanipal library, um, the remains of it, they found some of the most important tablets in history there, such as um, the Atrahasis came out of there. We find the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, we get um, some of the most important tablets in history that have come out of the Ashurbanipal Library. And so 
George Smith, when they had all these massive amounts of tablets that had been found and brought to the University of Oxford, he went there and spent all this time studying what he knew because he, he was the expert of the world at the time. He was studying um, the ancient Sumerian language, which was a dead language, and he was translating things like the Epic of Gilgamesh. And once he was starting to put the pieces together of what it said, this incredible story started to unravel about the ancient past that we've turned into largely a myth. And it, it was reported that George Smith actually started running around the room screaming because he realized he had stumbled upon probably, in my opinion, some of the most important ancient texts in history. How far back does uh, what he discovered, these tablets, these cuneiform clay tablets, go back? Does he, did they go back to this period known as the Anunnaki period 400,000 years ago, or how far back? Well, if we add up the reigns of all the kings in the Sumerian king list, we get something like 200,000 years ago. And I mean, oh and that for most for most people that, you know, really follow this doctrine of history that we're taught in school that wraps everything around in just a 6,000 year period where civilization emerged out of the Fertile Crescent, that number is is almost in, is almost incredible to even just think about because it would basically put the entire narrative of human history on its head. Now, I want to just bring up really quickly, Cliff, that if okay, some people say, okay, well, that's mistranslated, right? That's They weren't really using those ages. Well, I want to bring up um, – there's another tablet called En Mercar in the Lord of Arata, and in that tablet, it specifically translates that the, the king of En Mercar ruled the city of Uruk for 400 to 900 years depending on the translation. So – it's not just the Sumerian king list that we're getting these incredible reigns of some of these ancient people from, but it's it's other tablets as well that are confirming not only the reigns, but the cities as well. Are these tablets still in existence or have they been destroyed or does he uh, – does George Smith confirm and say, I was studying these tablets in this library, this gallery, this private collection? How, how do we know about the validity of these tablets? So um, – George Smith translated them based on being the expert of the world. And, it's in a, and you'll, you'll hear probably, and people will mention that, well, Zechariah Sitchin, he's not a serologist. He's not a translator. And that, and that yeah. is true. He did, he's self-taught and he learned some, some of this himself. But George mm -hmm. Smith was an expert. And right. to me, when I, I read and studied George Smith's translations, and then I studied Stephanie Daly, who translated these much, much later in the 1970s and 80s, it was comp it was almost exactly the same. So hmm. when I saw that correlation of two individuals from a completely different time periods that are experts in their field, I really locked on to those translations specifically and used those as a model to understand the past and specifically through the Atrahasis, which in my opinion may be the most important set of tablets ever but that's ever been written. I want I want to get into that in a minute, but uh, uh... How accurate is Sitchin based on your research of George Smith? Is Sitchin's book, The Earth Chronicles, an accurate accounting of the Anunnaki and the uh, uh, the Sumerians, or is he sprinkling it with uh, guesswork? I would say he's somewhat accurate. And, that, and again, that's not to a, a statement to make people angry, to discredit everything he's done. That's not really what it means. I mean, when you are translating this dead ancient language – you're going to make mistakes. 
Mm-hmm. And, and you're going to and you're going to decipher things in a certain way that may not be how others do. Like, for instance, he used this this number of the, th- the three thousand six hundred year number to represent some kind of a planet that mm-hmm. called the Biru that comes through. Well, when I read those tablets myself, I see no mention of that at all. It's, in fact, the number thirty six hundred is specifically mentioned in the Atrahasis referring Are you saying to Sitchin, uh, embellished. <laughs> His work. Well, I just, I, I guess, I, I guess I would say that there are certain interpretations with the text, like for instance, the the purpose of man being to mine gold. Um, I never, I I went in and I didn't, I didn't find that at all. But I did find that the purpose of man created in in terms of the gods was more or less to run this physical world. And the, they use they use the term digging and and working not in a mining sense, but more of a sense of clearing river channels of silt and, and, and providing massive um, means for agriculture, which is what the Fertile Crescent was famous for um, more than 10,000 years ago. It's much more arid than it was back then. How, uh, why, why do we not hear more about this, uh, this research from George Smith? You know, if this is, uh, if he was a, a valid interpreter, an academic in a sense, why have we not heard from this? Why uh, has, has it, has it been repressed or what? What's, what do you, what do you say? That's a great question. Um, I think it's a combination of a couple factors. One, I don't think that when, when you, when you discover something like this and you uncover something, you have a reputation to hold, to uphold. And I think that George Smith and in many ways, potentially even Stephanie Daly, there's a, a huge stigma against talking about what, a lot of people don't even think is real, which is this term Anunnaki or Anuna, as they call themselves in the Atrahasis. The um, it's you know, is that are are they just these archetypes of human nature? Are they just these elements of our 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 planet? You know, earth, wind, fire, water. Is that all they are, or are they actually real beings that came here? And I and I don't I don't like to use the word alien. I like uh-huh. to use. I I follow the idea of how reality can be conquered if you if you truly can master it. And I think that certain beings potentially ha- from from reading what the records actually state, not just my opinion. If you read about how they portray themselves and how they talk about coming here and everything, I think that they're most likely some some beings that were superior and were able to conquer their reality and travel between different dimensions. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, I want to get into to the Anunnaki. We have to when we start talking about the Sumerians. Does the language come up in these cuneiforms uh, describing the creation of Homo sapiens sapien by the Anunnaki? Yeah, um, many, many, many times. A lot of people may not realize how often it's talked about. Um, it's talked about in everything from the myth of Adapa, Atrahasis, um, Eridu Genesis, all the way to Anuma Elish um, and others. And it's one of these things that I'm almost amazed that more people haven't jumped on reading them themselves and going to see because it it really blows your mind when you read these words that have potentially, you know, not been spoken extensively for thousands and thousands of years. And they tell this ancient story about how mankind essentially was created to alleviate the workload of the gods, they say. It was it was it was a means for they state that. The Anunnaki came here 
and they had workers they called the Ajiji. This is what it states specifically in the Atrahasis especially. Mm-hmm. And that the Atrahasis, after 3,600 years, there's that number, they revolted. And they no longer wanted to work in our physical reality any longer. They said it was too much work. And, I, and they keep bringing up those terms work and all of these ideas about how toiling in our reality is, is – it was too difficult for them and they didn't want to do it anymore. So they created mortal man essentially in their image. And that's what I try to get across to people is that in my opinion, based on everything I've studied in looking at apes and evolution and Dar- Darwinism, that instead of us thinking that we're just an animal, which I think is a very clever means to control us actually, um, we I think in many ways we are the children of the Anunnaki. Hmm. So you feel this this information has been quietly suppressed or just not been made available to the masses uh, because there's another narrative, right? Yeah, I think the narrative is essentially to, to protect a certain version of um, human history to keep us in this box. I mean, if you were if you were told your whole life that you were just an evolved ape and that's all you were and that there's no connection to anything higher you would be able to go along with acting a certain way much easier. You know, you would be fine with, potentially fine, with working a lot of your life and having a um, having goals that are maybe not achieved and it, whatever, you know, I'm just, I'm here to just survival the fittest and do what I can to raise a family and then die and move on. But really when you, if you were to turn the, that whole notion on its head, and really look and look at these tablets and how the Anunnaki talk about us. Um, and I and I, I can read a, a quick quote also from that in a second. Um, but basically, if you were to reevaluate the human experience and what we are in terms of this incredible infinite consciousness that seems to be connecting to the the entire you know universe multiverse in uh, such a higher level, it, it really to me points that we are far more than just an evolved ape, and not that our um, our genetic history isn't isn't connected to ancient um, primates, something like, you know, the combination of the Neanderthal and Denisovian. But I think that there's a lot more to it than that, and that that was like the blueprint model for what we are. But essentially, we got the gifts and the essence of what we know as as the Anunnaki. And I really like that point that you make because there's a, a dimensionality about us that is not really known or or spoken about unless you're a mystic or you've studied meditation or the the eastern uh, arts of uh, uh, yoga and uh, whatever else. Yeah. So so we're not really complete in many ways because we're only we're only a physical being and not a spiritual being either. So this is a problem, isn't it? It's a huge problem. I mean, it's like we're missing half of us, if not more. I think I, I what I believe based on studying everything from you know string theory and quantum mechanics to these ancient tablets and just understanding the nature of reality and and what we are you know in terms of having chakras these energy center chakras within our body that perfectly mimic the visible light spectrum and all these different aspects that really separate us from the animal kingdom um, it really shows us it shows to me that first and foremost. We are spiritual conscious beings who are here to have a physical experience in a mortal body, not the other way around. So if you take out the, the spiritual soul connection to everything around us, 
it's it's like we're being it, it, we would essentially be kept in like a prison of our own energy. Mm-hmm. You say in the book that humans could be considered energetic slaves of the third dimension, incarnating in countless bodies until we grow spiritually and ascend our consciousness. Is that a statement because you feel that there's good and bad Anunnaki and uh, the bad side doesn't want us to actually transcend the physical and there might be a small group that wants us to actually fully embody what we are as a physical being. What, what, what are you trying to tell us there? Yeah, that's that's well said. Um, it's if you read the tablets and you and you get into things like the Epic of Gilgamesh and Deandre Hasis and others, you find out that there was um, there were problems with what we became. Um, in in essence, certain individuals of of part of the Anunnaki that were higher up, um, they didn't like that the way that we were created because we were supposed to be created as workers for this physical realm for them to essentially work for them. But one of the problems when you get to get into reading about that, I mean, I'm very happy that that is the problem because we wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't. But <laughs> one of the problems was essentially that Ea or Enkia, as he was called um, to the Sumerians, he realized that this was an opportunity to create like a, a essentially like a perfect being. Because if you were to think about, well, what would be the greatest achievement you could have if you were a higher being? It would be like, playing God, right? You'd be playing this prime creator role where you are essentially could create another being in, in your image that could could potentially become truly great and, and it would be designed in perfection. And, th- and that's actually what leads directly to this quote that I just want to read and then expand on just very quickly. It's called the myth of Adapa and it's a cuneiform tablet that was released and Adapa was the name of, of the first man, but not the first um, human, the first man that was created perfect. And that's what we think of as Adam. And it basically starts by saying he, Adapa, possessed intelligence. His command, like the command of Anu, he, the god Ea, granted him a wide ear to reveal the destiny of the land. He granted him wisdom, but did not grant him eternal life. In those days, and those years, the wise man of Eridu, there's that name Eridu, Ea had created him as chief among men, a wise man whose command none shall oppose, the prudent, the most wise among the Anunnaki he was. So that that little piece there, Cliff, gives us this little glimpse into how we were essentially created by Enki and um, his consort, Ninmar, Ninhar Saga, as, as she's called, Isis in Egypt. Um mm-hmm. To, to be like this perfect man. And because of that, we became hated by others because it became a situation where individuals like Enlil, his half-brother, that's what we know of as, as a tablet. He's called the Lord of the Air or Enlil. He became very jealous and, and hated us because we had the potential to become even greater than them. Mm-hmm. So according to Sitchin, the Anunnaki took whatever was on Earth at that time, whatever hominin. I'm going to guess at, at it being, oh, I don't know, one of the early breeds. And then they intermixed DNA genetically and uh, introduced it and then started breeding these the Homo sapiens. Is that what the story is, basically? Yeah, essentially they took uh, Neanderthal, Denisovian, a primitive um, primitive 
man, you could call it. It's not even a homo sapien. It was, it was, it, it obviously, this is pre- predating that. And Let then me they stopped it real quick. Are you saying that the, the Nificens were part of that or, uh, because I always thought it was the, uh, the earlier group. So Denificence, because that's, that's a fairly recent discovery. But you're you feel confident that that maybe they were one of the uh, uh, early hominins that were brought in to do this genetic work. Yeah, it's not fully clear whether what percentage or what or what fully what side became us. Whether it was mostly Neanderthal, mostly Denisovian, we don't fully know. But we do know it was a primitive man, a primitive a primate that okay. was then given essentially their gifts of genetic um, life and, um, you know, connecting to a higher spiritual realm and being essentially like them. But mm-hmm. uh, like, like you mentioned to I me, mean, the problem was that we, Enki designed us too well. We became a potential threat to even our creators. So they had pretty good genetics, I guess. Well, yeah, and, and it makes sense, doesn't it, Cliff, if you think about yeah. how the Sumerian king list and, and these other tablets talk about these long reigns of these bloodline kings that ruled, but then something happened and that, that no longer existed much later. Yeah, amazing. Hey, I want to get into some of the negatives that you bring up, which are very eye-opening uh, to me. And uh, in the book, you state, according to the ancient records, the Anunnaki managed to find a way to cheat the laws of the cyclic program or the Zodiac ages, as you call them. And for 4,000 years, which is the equivalent of two Zodiac cycles, they've kept us in the dark. Describe that. What what, what are you saying? Sure. So um, when I, when I mention the Zodiac, I'm not talking about necessarily someone's birthday. We're talking about um, what was considered the great measure of time to the Anunnaki. When you go to sites in Turkey, in the Anatolia region, Gobekli Tepe, the entire site is basically um, an astronomical temple that's dedicated to these different zodiacal ages, they're called. And that really is basically what that represents are when we think in the past of going from you know Aries to Pisces and then as we're moving towards Aquarius, those ages last roughly 2,100 years. And that's where you get that 4,000-year number. And that seems – according to all the tablets and, and what we can actually study about from ancient cultures, that seemed to be their obsession. It seemed to be how they tracked everything and, and, and created what we think of as balance. And so the, mm-hmm. the idea was that certain individuals, the Anunnaki, um, became very, very divided. Enki became very, very divided from Enlil, his half-brother. And the two sides had individuals and siblings and other um, people that were supportive of them um, that joined each side. And they decided the only way that they could essentially balance and rule us was to alternate each zodiac. And the way that the zodiacs work work is it re- relates to this precession of the equinoxes when our Earth has this slight tilt and wobble where it faces different constellations, and that's where we get these different time frames. And that was seemingly how they decided how certain time periods we rule. So when we think of the time of Aries, it was very very negative. It was basically war all around the world with empire building and yeah. individuals fighting. And then, well, isn't that doesn't that mean that Pisces should have been positive, right? Because it's a balance. You go you go back and forth. Well, the idea that I really delve into the in the in the stage of time and I talk extensively about is that well, one of Enki's firstborn son Marduk, who was the chief god of Babylon, 
Um, the idea was that he was supposed to rule during um, the time of Pisces, but there was some – you could call it some tricks were played and some some um, some malevolence occurred and they decided to, well, look, it's on Enki's family side, so you're still balancing it by having him rule. But it was ruled again through a negative, chaotic, empire-building and war mentality. And I would argue that uh, in some ways Pisces was, was even worse than Ares. Mm-hmm. So these two cycles uh, basically kept us as a warring, money-hungry civilization, and it's even it's even uh, bled into our current culture, isn't it? Yeah, and we're, and we're and we're you can clearly see that all around you. I mean, it may be we may be modernized and we have telephones and compute computers and all these things, but just look at the state of our world. We it's still empires competing with each other, even if it doesn't always seem that way on the surface. And war is still, you know, a hugely major component of our entire economy. And, and if you look at – if you have an economy that's m- more than 50 percent based on war, then you are an empire. That's just the way it works. And so yeah. because at that point, you, don't, you no, longer, no longer put things like education first. You put war first. And I think that we're very, clearly to me, we're at the end of an era. We're at the end of a great age. And – these war empires and this old energy and this old guard, as I like to call it, they don't want to let go of this system that's been created here. They don't want to move towards a time when we might have universal consciousness and break out of this illusion and this sleep cycle that we've been in. I want to get into ancient practices like meditation a little bit later towards the end, but uh, I do want to cover them. The Stage of Time is the name of the book we're talking about. I, there's so much to cover in this, Matt. I want to keep focused on these documents, which are just blowing me away. I have to be honest with you. I knew Zechariah Sitchin personally, had him at a number of conferences, and he was very threatened by a lot of questions about his research. I believe he was probably ahead of his time by a decade or more, but he never talked about any of these uh, these documents other than the tablets that he translated for the reader. I want to know a little bit more about this document called Nag Hamendi, which is, I think they're called scriptures, because they also talk about extreme age and also give us a hint about perhaps a place known as Atlantis. Sure. So the the Nag Hammadi scriptures are part of an ancient Gnostic set of writings. In fact, they're one of the most extensive Gnostic libraries ever discovered in 1950. Uh, in, during World War II, um, 1944, 1945, there was a cave that was discovered by some um, some farmers, some individuals that were walking uh, along the Nile River, um, and they found a cave that had been totally sealed up, just like we find in a lot of these other locations, where, like places like the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and the Book of Enoch. All of these ancient Gnostic and Egyptian writings – a lot of them were deliberately hidden and covered up in, in um, like they wanted to be like a time capsule for the future. And, and it really brings up like big questions about, well, why would they do that unless that information was being threatened at that, at that time or various other reasons? But what the Nag Hammadi, in my opinion, is it's one of the most important Gnostics uh, writings ever, ever written because it reviews this ancient, ancient viewpoint of – what the Sumerians called the Anunnaki and what the Nag Hammadi scriptures called the rulers of our reality. 
and they they go into detail about how there are spiritual beings essentially beings that are outside of our visible light spectrum that essentially rule our entire reality and we are essentially like pawns within that mm-hmm. now this is something uh, i want to bring up because i have a real problem with organized religion and i know as a, a mayanist who studies mayan culture and continues to be amazed by it the catholic church not only repressed the focus and the spirit behind the maya including probably getting rid of important artifacts uh, when they were here. But there's a lot more that they they may be hiding from us and our ability to really expand as human beings. Uh, you talk about the influence of the church and how it is, is uh, likely very damaging. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, and off air, you and I were discussing about the Americas and the, and the tragedy of the Mayas and, and, and Mayan and how the conquistadors that came over essentially rewrote the entire story. And I think that that is, is such a sad tragedy that here we have um, things like the flag of Mexico showing this eagle and the serpent battling and it became interwoven into Mayan culture currently today that that was you know part of their – Story of you know founding the ancient cities of Tenochtitlan in the 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 lake the lake bed of Texacoco and this story that you know they were very proud of but really it was just these this rewritten version by the Spanish conquistadors that allowed them to essentially stamp out their original story of of what they really were and what they really based themselves on which and, and you you fully know this as well because you've done a lot of studying on the Maya but. They were an an ancient group that really focused on the stars and on energy and on consciousness and understanding cycles. And the the Mayan codexes really show that, talking about how they really understood that different ages had different levels of consciousness and energy. And that when, you know, by the time the Spanish conquered and came through and found these ancient Mayan cities, you know, covered in the jungle and collapsed in in, in a ruined state. That version of the Maya that we saw that that had ended their civilization through desperation and blood sacrifice and war, that didn't represent the Maya. That didn't represent, you know, their god Kukulkan, this, you know, this serpent dragon god that represented higher wisdom that you can find evidence for all over the world. We got this very skewed version of Mayan history that really made them seem like they're savages and that there's nothing really to learn there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, there's so much we could cover in this. This is, this is fun. Um, you mentioned, and, and as a side note, we're beginning to open to the possibilities that, uh, we're having constant connection with off world types and you can call them ETs, aliens, whatever. There's more evidence that they're here. They have been here for thousands and thousands of years. In your book, you write that there are certain very old beings who can, transmute death by thousands of years and they are among us today what are the influencing influence of these beings are they still uh, have their hands involved in things are, are they dimensional travels can you talk a little bit about them and are they offshoots of anunnaki or how do you describe them yeah, I, I think the evidence really shows that they're one and the same with um, the Anunnaki, who in the Emerald Tablets, they called them the children of light in that um, Thoth did. And it's the idea that these these beings somehow conquered their reality. 
And it really makes sense in terms of longevity and, and living for, for extensive periods of time when you see the reigns of the bloodline kings that had the same genetics that had been carried down, but in a more, you know, a subtle way because it had lost, you know, some of that eternal quality over thousands and thousands of years of generation after generation. But I'm very open to the idea that there are other groups here observing us and could have been part of our ancient history uh, besides just what we think of as the Anunnaki. In fact, the Anunnaki, we don't even really know what they are. We just know that they're a collection or a group of beings that came here. They may be beings that could be part of the, the Pleiades star system. They could be from, you know, um, constellations, all Orion and Sirius. We, we don't know. They could be from all a collection of all kinds of different star systems. But what we do know is that those ancient ones, which is what the Cherokee called them, they call them the old ones, and then the ancient ones has been used by other cultures all around the world. I mean the, the Hopi talked about them as well. The idea that there were these these beings that used to um, manifest in the physical reality and come here. They used to interact with elders and shamans and, and individuals that were important, and then over time, um, it states that after this great catastrophe deluge swept through and destroyed this old world that they left – they departed our reality, and and we they were we were essentially left to sort of fight amongst ourselves. Where some would speculate that they're they're here, but they're more of like an Overwatch sort of guard through other dimensions that we can't perceive. So there's no evidence, and you haven't heard of any of these uh, beings being uh, or talking or communicating or writing any uh, information to our current society. I think it's it's clear if you read the Epic of Gilgamesh mentions it as well, um, Eridu Genesis, others, where they it states in there that they departed from from our reality. They used to have a much bigger part. Mm. In fact, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I think has largely been um, glossed over by too many people that just see it as a great poem, but in that Gilgamesh is seeking immortality from um, who he calls Untapishti, who is the same figure known as Atrahasis. Or Noah, um, and he's also called Zayasudra. They had many names to many different cultures. But what's amazing is that um, Gilgamesh finally reaches Untapishti Atrahasis, and he he discusses with him and talks to him about how he achieved immortality. And he and, and Untapishti tells him that he was once part of um, a, a much older ancient time, and he was in the city of Sharupak, which he was the last king of. That's what's so incredible about it is you can take that information from the Epic of Gilgamesh and match it up exactly with other things like the instructions of Shurupak and Atrahasis and a lot of these others where you say, oh, wow. So he was the last king of Shurupak after his father, Ubarotutu, had, had passed on. He was the last king there, and he, and he specifically talks about observing this great deluge disaster that occurred and what he says in there that's so interesting in my opinion is he tells Gilgamesh that Sharupak, the last city, the last pre-Diluvian city that was here before the deluge, that the it was ancient. It was very old, he says. And he said the gods used to walk among them there and were part of the city. And then he states that they departed after seeing the cataclysms essentially almost wipe out. Um, in some cases, a lot of, a lot of the tablets say it was deliberate because if, uh, individuals like Enlil and others – saw humanity as this blight on our planet that was unbalanced and there was a lot of other problems. So they uh, 
either created or allowed a disaster to essentially reset everything. But because of that decision, a lot of other individuals, they called, you call them the Elohim, the Council of Twelve, they looked at this disaster occurring with most of humanity wiped out and they were appalled about what they had allowed to happen. And they, because of that, they departed and left here. That's, mm. that's what the actual tablet states. You make a, an interesting mention that uh, the legacy of the old ones, and now these are the old Maya, the original Maya, the original Aztec, uh, live through their temples and pyramids. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that there's an energy contained in these structures that's uh, still radiating? I mean, I believe that, at least for the Maya, they built their uh, cities to emulate the cosmos. And in some cases... Uh, the way the these uh, civic centers are lined up, they actually are a direct reproduction of uh, a star system or a constellation. Uh, what do you say about that? Yeah, um, I think when you look at um, Teotihuacan, if you overlay that with something like the Orion constellation and you look at things like the Great Pyramids and others, yeah, you, you find some strange correlations where they seem to line up with these different constellations. And to me, it connects to this time when there was much more knowledge and understanding present with these cultures and they and they tried to emanate and they were obsessed with um, these different zodiac ages and reaching higher states of consciousness. I mean, think about that. Today, what are we obsessed with? We're focused on materialism and making money and living these largely empty lives if you really consider what the ancients considered important. And so we've we we're at the complete other end of the spectrum in terms of what they believed in. You know, to them not jewels and money, none of that stuff mattered or even some in some cases like money didn't really exist for them. I think they've done searches, uh, ancient research finding that, you know, the Mayas may have used chocolate for currency and other things like that. But but what's important is that they they saw the importance of their time here to grow spiritually and, and to reach higher levels and to connect to this higher level of consciousness that exists throughout the cosmos and that the Anunnaki understood. And I think that that, that knowledge that was handed down to a lot of uh, most of those cultures long ago was carried on by those ancient priests and shamans and they built these incredible temples. And then later on, um, they were largely destroyed. And then the cultures that had in some cases, especially like the Inca that came later, they tried to emanate and they tried to rebuild them and they just, they just couldn't, they just lacked the knowledge and the information and the sophistication. Hmm. You know, I've talked to some Catholic priests over the years and they're very hesitant to approve practices like meditation or anything that kind of connects you to a higher dimension other than prayer. And, I think in a lot of ways, prayer is a form of meditation, except that it's not necessarily concentrated and it's, uh, I don't know, it's its its too new. Uh, as we conclude today, what would you suggest that uh, people do today to, to get greater awareness, uh, which is part of their heritage? It's their physical, mental, and spiritual heritage. Yeah, and it's, I, again, it's not one of the things – I don't just read a, a lot of this ancient wisdom, especially like the Gnostics who really get more into talking about how to reach higher states of consciousness and energy. That's what their focus was. And so in, in reading all of that and studying ancient you know, Hindu and Buddhist cultures, looking at the Indus Valley civilizations and you know the Yuga cycles and the Vedic texts and 
I, I tried to get my hands around every single ancient text I could. I wanted to, I wanted to underst- understand what they knew back then, and I tried to incorporate them into the, my life. You know, go outside on a on a beautiful spring or summer day and spend time meditating and trying to connect to these higher states of energy. And I I was absolutely, um, it was truly profound. I think that's the best word I could use to describe it, that when you read something in these texts and then you go do it to connect to places where you only read about and it's it's almost beyond words. And, and when when you're able to do that, to do essentially what these ancient people were doing um, and trying to get a, a glimpse of what the ancient world was and what their belief systems were and what and why they focus so much time on creating these structures and de- dedicating their society to to those principles, it really changes your life when you actually get to experience it firsthand. And I, and I really encourage people to one, be very open minded in your life. Try to reevaluate maybe what you think you know and just look at it in another context. Um, like Aristotle once said, it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. You know, why do we have to reject everything without pondering it? What's the danger in that? Go look at these ancient cultures. Go read these ancient translations. I include um, some of the most important ancient translations of all time in, in the book Stage of Time. Go read them for yourself. Go see what these ancient cultures were saying and then go out and practice it. Go out and, and try to connect to a, a higher spiritual conscious level. And it takes time. But when you can achieve those higher states of energy, it, it'll change everything in your life. Every, your perspective will change forever. Wow. We could talk for another hour or two, Matt. This has been fun. The book's called The Stage of Time. My guest today has been Matthew LaCroix. Uh, Matt, what's your website people can check out and get more information about your work? Thanks, Cliff. Um, my website is thestageoftime.com. And if you're not able to get the book, um, I have ancient translations right in there, some history. You can learn about you know, where they came from and read them for yourselves. Um, and I also have a YouTube channel at Matthew LaCroix as well. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's a good read. It's well written. Uh, I enjoyed it and I learned some things. Uh, good work, Matt. And uh, continue success. Let's have you back on again. Thank you so much, Cliff. I really appreciate it. I failed to mention that Matt's book is available on Amazon and uh, you can see it there and it's available. The Stage of Time, Matthew LaCroix, L-A-C-R-O-I-X. And um, it's a quick read. I think it's a couple hundred pages and it's uh, well-researched. I I liked reading it. I enjoyed uh, the material. And he opened my eyes to a number of documents and a number of researchers that I hadn't heard about before. So uh, it's always good to, to grasp new material because uh, there's just really not a lot that we have from the ancient past. I mean, uh, the Sumerians are such a strange people to begin with, and they're so old, and they're really the first real civilized ancient people uh, around the same time as the early pre-dynastic uh, Egyptians, but the Sumerians are are unique in, in many, many ways. So it was fun having uh, Matt on the show and definitely want to have him back.